Purpose Highway is a space for discussions that drive connections toward people's highest purpose to build a better self and a better world. Join me for season one, where I start to uncover stories of entrepreneurs and thinkers that are making an impact. I'm your host, Scott Mason, and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. It is Scott Mason revving up for another ride down the Purpose Highway. And sitting next to me in the front seat today is Gretchen Jones. Gretchen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Now, for those of y'all who don't know who Gretchen is, and I can't imagine who you people are, but <laughs> for those of you who don't know, she is the winner of season eight of Project Runway and has been described as the most controversial winner ever. She's a strategic business advisor, a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner, and holds an MBA from the London College of Fashion. She's also a keynote speaker and lecturer and ambassador for sustainability, most notably for presenting her work at South by Southwest on a regular basis. She's spoken everywhere from Columbia University's business school to Princeton and has been featured in numerous fashion magazines like Refinery29 and L. Gretchen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. I am very excited to have you. Let's roll up our sleeves and go right into the action here. All right, I'm ready to dive in. <laughs> During the pre-interview, you told me that you felt connected to the idea of action bringing hope to life. Gretchen, be honest with us. In your life, have you ever been without hope? I, I think I have a, I have an interesting relationship with hope. I, I see hope now more in a manner that's more connected to resilience and, and what it means mm. to really still get up when, when your faith might be wavering mm -hmm. in yourself, in circumstances. But even when things have been really, really difficult, um, it reminds me of a, a, a small story with my stepfather. Every time I would be in a place that was more hopeless instead of hopeful, mm -hmm. um, he would say to me, baby, what would you be doing? He's from Texas. Baby, what would you be doing if it wasn't this? And every single time I would have an answer and he was like, well, then you're bent. You're not broken. Mm. And when I think of hope, it's more about flexibility and having the capacity to bend back. Mm. And, and I'm fortunate enough to most often bend instead of mm -hmm. break. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Let's go a little bit into your background. That's a perfect segue into your background, actually. You once told me, and I remember this so vividly, that before you began Project Runway, you had a premonition. Tell us about that premonition and tell us if it came true. Yeah. Um, you know, Project Runway has been around for a very long time, maybe 2005 ish. And I, I really enjoyed the show from the very beginning. Um, in part, I think because it wasn't, it, it is reality television, but it was connected to creativity. And I just mm -hmm. always kind of had 
um, an admiration for what it would take to be under even more pressure than an industry standard that's pretty pressure filled to yeah. begin with yeah. and create that way. And as my my own professional career as a fashion designer was blooming, I reached a point where my ideas were more successful than my means. And the cash flow issues in, in fashion, um, because of how the the seasonal calendars work, are really, really tricky. And I had been on Project Runway's radar for a while because of where I was living in Portland, Oregon, um, which has a very healthy independent fashion community and scene. Mm. And I just, at the time, I just didn't, want to be on the show. This was in the mid 2000s near, near the great recession. And I had launched my business right during the great recession in a more formal way. And I had turned down the calls that would come through the city multiple times. And the year that I ended up applying was a special year. I had no intentions of, of, participating in, in the media side of fashion. Um, but I had gone to market and had my best booking ever, but I couldn't afford to produce the product. And at the exact same time of trying to evaluate how to move forward, um, knowing that my ideas were viable, um, but that I didn't really have the infrastructure in place, the a lot of the retailers that were interested in working with me had been contacted by the show as well. And they asked, you know, what independent designers are you following or interested in working with? And my name kept coming up. So even though I was a little bit already on the radar, they had they had been hearing my name over and over again. And then I started getting calls from the retailers as I was having to, you know, negotiate potentially not producing their orders that they had they had said my name to the show and the resistance I had started to fall away. And I had, I had a feeling that they were going to contact me and, and, you know, not out of the blue now in hindsight, it wasn't out of the blue, but I out of the blue got an email directly from the producers. And usually that's not how it works. They, they open call, you go and try mm. out um, or get accepted to come in and do a, a walk-in. And they contacted me directly and, and really urged me to come um, in and go through the full um, application process. And the second I got that email, I just had a feeling that I was not only going to be accepted, but I was going to win the show. And in order, rather than just feeling that and trusting it, I'm a I'm a big believer in manifestation through action. Um, and that really you have to be able to envision where you're mm -hmm. trying to go. Mm -hmm. um, Jake Gyllenhaal once said, um, the target draws forth the arrow. When you don't know where you're shooting wow. mm -hmm. the arrow, it's hard to land. Yeah. And yeah. so in that process, what I ended up doing, because I, I knew I had already developed a whole new collection for a season. Um, I signed up for um, private pattern drafting classes to perfect my mm. individual capabilities of, mm -hmm. of drafting the patterns in real time. I watched every single season and tallied how many, how many, like what the average amount of um, challenges there were, how often people changed outfits. I took it very seriously. I was a um, athlete when I was a child and I, I approached it from 
really athletic training's um, point of view and that perfection is really through practice. So I, I, every single day put the intention towards I'm going to win this and I mm -hmm. need to come in as though I know that that's happening. Um, and the, the funniest part was I envisioned all the way up to when I was going to have my roommate um, leave and have my own bedroom because I knew the tensions of how they put, you know, it's, it is a reality show. They do want um, the drama. So I was like, I know in order for me to move forward and win this, I'm going to need my own space. So I manifested and, and envisioned how many um, days I would have to be sharing a space with someone wow. um, versus not. And when we got into our assigned rooms, I unpacked every single outfit. I, I had strategized each look based on the average amount of challenges there were down to my accessories. Wow. Um, I had a very focused idea of how I was going to do my hair and makeup each day. So it was a formula that wouldn't take too much time. And the my roommates and, and the other competitors thought I was nuts, but everything that I had strategized and, and really envisioned came true almost exactly how I had pictured it, um, including having a premonition that I was going to be potentially the evil one um, or, or really? edited into being a bit of the villain. Yeah. Um, and all of it came true all the way down to how I reacted on stage when I was an announced that I won. That I'm sure people listening to or watching will have to take a second to take in. And even though I knew all of this from our prior conversation, it still is a lot taking in because <laughs> it raises so many issues that are deeper than just fashion itself or being on a reality show or mm. being someone living life. One of the things that you talked about a few minutes ago that it raises to me as an issue is connected to this idea of hope. Do you feel that there is a connection between hope and fate to the extent that mm. you had this premonition and that you were planning um, and that you were also manifesting. Did you see that as related to your belief in hope? And do you think that the premonition that you had was related to fate or destiny? Mm. Or not? That's such an interesting question. Um, you know, I tend to be both, as I like to say, woo-woo, and then wildly grounded and pragmatic um, <laughs> or a realist. Isn't um, it fun? <laughs> I, it is fun. It's also kind of the only way to go, I think, is to, you know, <laughs> believe in magic and also trust um, what's right in front of us. Um, to You know, I feel pretty strongly that our talent and potential is in the eye of the beholder, just like um, beauty. And that it it only can come to be um, with when it is matched with our work ethic and our trust in ourselves mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and our dedication to being very present um, in the moment. And to me, fate is, you know, like it's I, I what I struggle with nowadays with the idea of fate or or destiny is there are tiers of privilege that in, are in a part of the experience of, of mm. where and how we can move forward 
um, and use our capacity and capabilities. Mm -hmm. Capacity to me is really our bandwidth. Um, it's rooted in, in, um, the barriers to entry around us, our class levels, our, our, the structure of our societies, all of the bandwidth, like be, being a parent, not being a parent, how much money we have, how much education we have, all of those sorts of things kind of infuse and inform our capacity. Mm -hmm. Our capabilities are very different. They can be far more expansive than our capacities. So I want to acknowledge that, you know, moving manifestation and moving towards, you know, our fullest potential um, and what we're destined to be, there is a hindsight element. Um, I, I like thinking about, you know, it's not, um, we don't get to attach meaning to the things that happen to us until they happen. Yeah. And it's really how we reflect on those things. Yeah. Um, that said, I believe I was moving towards needing a profound um, both opportunity and challenge to really reflect on what I believe in. And as much as the experience of being on that show was, you know, a story of a cautionary tale in some ways, but also a story of triumph and, and dedication um, and, and, you know, kismet. I also feel like it, was never there to lead me towards a long-term career mm. in fashion. It really forced me to reckon with who I was. And I, I sensed that was my, my destiny was me mm. choosing to put myself in a position that forced me to see beyond the superficial and really understand what I wanted to be when I, you know, grew up or, or leaned further into who I am. Amazing. You said that being on the show forced you to confront yourself and ultimately ended up not necessarily leading you in the career direction that one might have imagined, having just watched you on the show. Talk to us a little bit about the aftermath of the show for you internally and how that led you to the next step on your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I thought I was prepared I think we all sort of believe we we know what we're getting ourselves into. And in many ways, I think I I was prepared for the experience. I knew it was going to be hard and and in some ways traumatic even was just a premonition that I had um, because of the psychological play that production does yeah, in yeah. reality shows to make sure it's entertaining. You know, at the end of the day, it's not really about a runway show. It's about a it's about a good television show. Yeah. Um, so I was aware that that was out of my control. I, I had the premonition that I was going to be um, edited. I, I don't think I knew I was going to be the bad guy. I think I had a, you know, I had an idea that a young, attractive, talented woman is not necessarily who you would, that's confident and, and articulate, is not necessarily who we like to root for. Mm. So I kind of had an mm -hmm. idea that that, you know, that my part of the ingredients was maybe one that was going to be a little controversial. Mm. What I wasn't expecting afterwards was just how much the show itself didn't support my winning um, or or my my character and integrity. And... Um, I wasn't, you know, this was really kind of at the beginning of Instagram and a different chapter in social media mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and how, 
how I was interacted with with the general public, I always knew I wasn't going to be everybody's cup of tea and that my aesthetic and point of view was more uh, independent and alternative and not necessarily for everybody. I wasn't prepared for how my my identity was going to be challenged um, and then and how much people really believe that these shows are real and that the way that the editing is done, I mean, we're filmed up to 22 hours a day. Oh Every I, I, I've always said, I think it would be really interesting to have a reality show where it's one person that mm -hmm. um, gets edited into each character because mm -hmm. we really all have moments of yeah. being jerks or scared or frustrated yeah. or the underdog or the winner. Yeah. All of those things are a part of the human experience. Um, so after the show, I actually went into very intensive therapy um, to better manage suddenly being famous. Wow. And our culture really, I think, over indexes on seeing success as mm -hmm. fame and wealth. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I don't think we revere enough um, our anonymity. And, and I don't think we see mm. our anonymity as sacred and special mm. and important. Um, so that was rather traumatizing, just, just not being able to go walk my dog in the morning with maybe makeup around my eyes from last mm -hmm. night um, without being recognized and things like that. And I didn't realize that that wasn't something I really wanted. Mm. Um, and this was also, a you know, at a chapter when fashion was starting to reckon with the unsustainable um, modes of operating the within the entire industry, be that supply chain, how, how much product we produce, how we exploit the creative talent um, that drives the um, material goods forward. And, and it forced me the the aftermath of the show really forced me to reckon with the difference between what I thought I wanted and what I had told myself mm -hmm through giving into more societal pressures, um, how that, how much of that was out of alignment with the life I wanted to live on a daily basis, just the actual lifestyle I wanted, mm -hmm. um, through to the kinds of the amount of bandwidth I wanted or capacity to engage, um, with my friends and family mm -hmm. to the soul soulfulness mm -hmm. behind the work that I wanted to mm -hmm. do. And I, and I was forced to reckon in a, rather um, expedited manner um, with things that I don't think I would have really been able to do on my own. Um, and that's really the gift, I think, of the experience is that it, it forced me to fall into the line of work that I do now um, through really um, encouraging me to reflect on my moral compass and, and what I believe um, as a human being and a, and a person who wants to be civically engaged and, and participate in society at large. Was it a sudden aha moment or series of aha moments, or was it a gradual awakening that maybe through just the process of living it, thinking, therapy, all those sorts of things emerged? I'd say some, some parts were um, rather abrupt. I'd say, you know, how many of us actually give ourselves the opportunity to kind of be slapped on the face of the difference between how we perceive ourselves yeah. and how those outside of us perceive our, our experience and modes of operating. That was, that was rather 
expedited, um, but awakening to really where my magical powers are. You know, I believe we're all multidimensional beings with lots to offer in different ways. Um, But I'd say like understanding that my aesthetic talents didn't actually feed my soul the way I thought they were going to and um, was more gradual. And the more I learned and the higher up I got, it's a few of the positions that I had after the show, the more I really had to come to terms with the fact that I, I didn't believe creating more stuff in a world that's oversaturated with options was going to lead me to um, the level of personal fulfillment and pride in my work that I was seeking. Let's talk a little bit about some of those post-television show positions and then how you transitioned into that next phase before we really roll up our sleeves and dig into what you're talking about with regards to us just putting stuff out there. Fast fashion, I think, is something you and I talked about during an earlier conversation Mm -hmm. that relates to that. But that's not the only commodity that we just mass produce and put out in the world. But before we go there, tell us a little bit more about your journey and and where that ultimately took you. Yeah. Um, So right after the show, I moved to New York City. It just seemed like the prudent thing to do, take the opportunity as to to use that momentum, regardless of how um, it reflected on me. I wanted to get to the city. Um, I always wanted to live in New York, and I always wanted to compete on um, a more New York Fashion Week level ready-to-wear um, line. So it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, I, I moved quite literally the same, basically the same day um, that the episode that announced me as the winner happened. So I was in the city already when the show was completed. And I very aggressively for three years um, launched my own eponymous label. I was able to find investors um, and really tried my damnedest to, you know, be a, a Marc Jacobs level designer. That's what I thought I really wanted. And what I came to terms with through that experience is that the the level of investment that was needed to compete on a global stage, um, I just didn't have the financial um, access that I needed to mm-hmm. to be able to maintain that level. And I got I had some guidance that wanted to support me in that capacity, but didn't really do me right in terms of of really reflecting on the the financing that was behind the business. So one of the lessons I learned is that I I probably went out too big, guns blazing, and I should have grown small with an individual item or or category um, because that was going to be a more viable way of moving forward. That said, in hindsight, I don't think that would have happened mm-hmm. uh, for many reasons. So that, that experience ended because we just weren't able to um, hit our financial goals and my investors and I parted ways right as I was hired to be um, the women's wear fashion director for Pendleton Woolen Mills, which was actually back in Portland, um, was not expecting to go back west um, at all. But that opportunity was an amazing one. They're American. Um, they're a fifth generation or maybe sixth mm-hmm. now. Um, 
American manufacturing company, which I've always been really connected to. Um, I think regional manufacturing is uh, paramount to the health mm -hmm. of a society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to be able to learn more about textile design and, and have the ability to work with craftspeople um, and mm. skilled technical designers in a way that I was not able to do on my own. And that mm. was a beautiful experience, but it was a very commercial experience. And, and I really had to reckon through my own business failing and coming into a heritage business that was risk averse mm. um, for, you know, both obvious and not so obvious reasons that commercialization really strips the creativity out of the design studio and that in a data-driven world, um, I will reference data for a hot second, but not too much. In a data-driven <laughs> world, we what that does is it really, you, you're pitting creativity against big data mm -hmm. and big data will always win because mm -hmm. it seems like facts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I ended up resigning from that role um, because I wasn't, I didn't feel very supported as a creative mm -hmm. and I felt like I needed to understand the language of the business of design rather than, um, just leaning on my creativity. Because if I had to be in boardrooms defending my vision, I certainly should know all the acronyms and how to push yeah. when sales tells me I need to make more black turtlenecks. Right, right, um, right. What I wasn't expecting though, was to go get my MBA um, and not step back into the studio. And when I went to the London College of Fashion into this international um, MBA program, I really was, it was like another tier of awakening in, in that I, I really came to realize that creatives within any industry, be it theater, um, music, television, fine art, fashion, and anything in between, um, the creative side is only about, if you're lucky, 10% of the industry mm -hmm. and the business of these things, and that we don't really have a lot of support. Um, you know, there's business advisors, there's financial advisors, there's management advisors, but there's not a lot of support to help guide creatives to be stronger leaders, to understand the responsibility design is not self-indulgent it is meant to sell mm -hmm. um, and to take responsibility for for that position that they've decided to lean into and to be better leaders for their teams um, both from a moral standpoint um, but also from a strategic standpoint and and that's what really led me to leaving the industry at large and and be opening up my own firm what is the biggest challenge that you believe creatives face when it comes to expanding their own internal portfolio to become effective and powerful leaders? I feel like there's a few different things. Um, I think Western culture over indexes on um, individual performance being a touchstone benchmark of strong leadership. And I once heard, um, you know, like 80% of management, people in management positions have never got, undergone any sort of leadership training or mm, management training of any right kind. Now. And I think, 
I think that's true. If you look at the way our society kind of works, it's like pretty obvious that, you know, we we encourage leadership is usually attached to individual performance, which is attached to wanting to make more money, really, mm-hmm. in a capitalistic society. Um, but we don't necessarily encourage and foster the growth on a holistic level, full whole person level around the selflessness um, that is needed within um, leadership positions or management positions. So one of the things that from a creative standpoint, I think, is that like we're really reckoning with the difference between dictatorial leadership and creative where I have the vision and you are supposed to help me execute upon my my vision and that you're actually just a support system rather than really seeing all the tools in our toolbox and and the power of collaboration and how that stimulates innovation. It makes ideas more, um, again, whole, whole and round, um, and that the diversity and range of using all the tools in our toolbox as the people on our teams or in different departments and the insights they might bring in, all of that to me is vital um, to really see as more important than your own vision or your own um, talent. And that there, when we work holistically together, the synergy that happens there really ignites a business um, or a individual creative idea. But that that means really having curiosity beyond self indulgence and and seeing reward, mm-hmm. especially in a commercial and consumer based society. Seeing the reward being that that we are so supporting a healthful, collaborative, engaged. Um, community of creatives that work towards achieving goals that are beyond the vision itself and that the leaders really need to reckon with the fact that like uh, the self-indulgent side is important. That is not something that we should let go of, but that we should be seeing ourselves more as gatekeepers and that strong Mm. creative direction and strong charismatic inspired leadership brings everyone with them and and allows the in, the enrichment of an experience that's not um, selfish, but um, about the whole team. Um, that's when I see the best performance. I see healthier work environments. I see more rewarded leaders um, because the strategy of a business really isn't how your next collection or your next play or your next album. Right. That's not, you're only as good as the last creative idea. Right. You have if you if you operate that way. If you think about the business you are in and the industry you're in and what it means to show up every single day, bringing everyone along with you and seeing them as just as vital to your own success as the companies, um, I think it really changes the way you approach your profession and your own portfolio. I'm going to tie two seemingly unrelated things that you've said in the interview with something that someone said from a prior interview and then ask for your comments on it as well as something you said during the pre-interview. So wrap your mind around that. I've given you a predicate and you can handle it. And I know you will. I know you'll blow us all away. (laughs) So you talked a lot in that last answer about collaboration and the importance of bringing that to expand a vision out to make a business itself sustainable, as well as to not be limited to the vision of a single individual, particularly if that individual is going through a creative dry spell. 
earlier when you talked about being on Project Runway, though, you talked about how people who might have looked like you might not be people that audiences are primed to root for. In your pre-interview, you said that one of the things that you were passionate about was the future of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In an earlier interview on this show with another person in the fashion industry, John Bartlett, he indicated that part of what he found fascinating about fashion was it as a vehicle for exploration of sociological challenges, such as body diversity, racism, sexism, gender roles. Throwing all of that at you. Do you feel that there is a relationship between where you've been in the creative and fashion world, where you're at with regards to that passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the future of business? Mm. You know what that makes me think of is coming back to the beginning with the questions about hope. Um, I am hopeful that we are moving towards more equitable and just uh, futures, both inside and outside of the industries that I work with. That said, I don't have a lot of faith in in things. Um, I, I feel like it's hard to be hopeful when we see certain backslides like we have over the past year, the amount of women that have left the workplace, the continued challenges in terms of academics, um, opportunity. Um, it's, it's tricky. Um, I think being a human being, one of the things that I really hope we start reckoning with more is that we are not infallible. And even those with good intentions continue to cause pain or, or suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. when we think of business, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, um, actually in a great book to reference, um, I will maybe hand off in the show notes was talking about, you know, most, if, if we are going to continue to operate like we do, most CEOs, most industry leaders or, you know, pundits or uh, talking heads would agree that, you know, the system is not really set up to not cause pain. That can Mm -hmm. be environmental pain. It can be social pain, um, or, most often both. And and my concern in terms of mm-hmm. DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion, when we look at it through the lens of, of how that relates to sustainability, is the scale in which we are operating and consuming and designing and developing for is just not very sustainable. And it always, we're always pushing the pain further down um, the supply chains or the, the development chains. So my hope Really, what, why I have faith that we are moving towards things is, you know, we are slightly moving towards less tokenism in boardrooms. And, you know, the seat at the table stuff is being challenged in ways that, you know, are, you know, as a cis heteronormative white woman, you know, it's my job not to protect the, ta- the seat I have, but to help force more mm-hmm. chairs 
around the table or mm-hmm. to, you know, help push for a more diverse representation around the table. It's not really about mm-hmm. me giving up my seat. It's about making room mm-hmm. and creating space. Mm-hmm. I think that's important, but I don't think, you know, our, the great leaders of industry are not, not at all attached to the farmer's growing the cotton or Mm -hmm. our vegetables, um, Mm -hmm. the people that are, you know, forcibly having to break down iPhones Mm -hmm. uh, for the metals. Like Mm -hmm. we really do have extreme suffering Mm -hmm. further down our supply chains. And I think we need representation of that in our boardrooms. Mm. So really my idea of DE&I is shifting more towards how do we have advocates, be it unions or, you know, societal lobbyists that move move up the supply chain and into leadership roles that aren't just black, white, gay, straight, mm-hmm. young, old, but are really representative of each tier within each industry so that we are having more meaningful and compelling conversations about the impacts of both sustainability on an environmental level and a social level throughout each tier of what is possible. Mm-hmm. It's the only way we're really going to be able to move forward in a way that can allow things like, you know, green energy to not then also have negative impacts mm-hmm. somewhere or sustainable mm-hmm. fashion, um, not still be hurting people somewhere. And, and I just think too much of our representation is really about um, elite leadership still be at high performers that move through that don't necessarily have, mm-hmm. you know, a Harvard degree. Um, they're still, there's still, you know, a performance level that is needed in order to get to the C-suite. And I think we need to really open the doors a little bit more and reckon with um, the hierarchy within how we operate our, our businesses and industries. Gretchen, in a way, it feels like our conversation is just beginning. How can anyone watching this or listening to this find out more about you? Well, you can go to my website, which is not my name. It's uh, weirdspecialty.com. And I'm called Weird Specialty. I've had a couple of clients say it because I do marry, you know, business strategy and and coaching with um, the bizarreness of this conversation. Like, what does it mean to want to be a soulful um, human with a strong moral compass mm-hmm. operating um, as a professional, and that's really a weird specialty. So you can find me at weirdspecialty.com. Also, my Instagram account is weirdspecialty. Um, and I work with clients that operate from solopreneurs um, who are starting their own um, businesses or operating their own businesses on very small scales, all the way up to CEOs of, of organizations operating in the tens of millions. So I try to use the spectrum of access that I have to help enrich and challenge um, and inspire um, both small and and big businesses at the same time. I think that's a paramount for us to be able to move forward as a society. It sounds like you have found your purpose. I sure feel like it. I love it. Well, Gretchen, it has been great riding with you down the Purpose Highway today. Thank you very much. Anyone who's listening or watching, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review and subscribe. And we will see you next time for another ride down the Purpose Highway. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Join our community today at PurposeHighway.com. 
and subscribe to get notified when new episodes go live. Scott Mason, checking out.